Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're tuned in to Grip It and Rip It, sponsored by LB's Meat Market. We're going to get started here in a second, but first, let's hear from LB's. Grip It and Rip It with Brian Scott Rippy is brought to you by LB's Meat Market. LB's, the preeminent butcher shop in Oxford, Mississippi. The place to go for any and all of your meat needs. Just right now, they've got the Lane Train Special, a six-ounce bacon-wrapped filet for $10. they got fresh seafood, grill packs, and a lot of different types of sausages. Put simply, if your grill is in need of meat, the only place to go in Oxford, Mississippi is LB's Meat Market. Give them a call today at 662-259-2999. That's 662-259-2999. Stop by and see them at 2008 University Avenue. That's just across the street from Kroger. It's LB's Meat Market, your butcher shop in Oxford, Mississippi. Griffin Ribbon, a weekday edition. I'm not sure if my boss Ben is going to put this up on Wednesday or Thursday, but still decided between that. Whatever day it is, happy, uh, happy midweek to you. Uh, this is our midweek show. As usual, we've got Ben Briner, uh, covers South Carolina for the state. He's at Briner, B R E I N E R, the state on Twitter. Read him in the pages of the state's website. Great follow for South Carolina coverage. What's up, man? How are you? I appreciate you coming on. Hey, appreciate you for uh, for having me on. It's uh, it's been a little bit of an interesting first half of the week, and uh, getting ready to take a trip out to the the Magnolia State, right? Yeah, no kidding, man. So, uh, full disclosure, we're recording this on a Tuesday evening, and you know, the in the hours earlier, it's the the slate for SEC games this week is whittling down to say the least to where. If this game happens, and this is really the only game, I think, that doesn't have any COVID issues at all, or at least not that seem, the game seem to be a doubt. I guess Arkansas and Florida qualifies, although Sam Pittman won't be coaching, it doesn't seem like. But a uh, couple more cancellations. You had Auburn-Mississippi State canceled earlier in the week. You have Alabama and LSU not playing, and then you had Tennessee and uh, Texas A&M also get postponed. I guess we'll just get the arbitrary part out of the way. How has South, you know, South Carolina, I don't think has had really much, much danger, endangerment of missing games unless I'm uh, 
unless I missed something. I know they were missing a couple guys last week. What has their COVID situation been like this year? I guess the best way to ask that is they gotten close to having to miss a game. What's that kind of been like? They've actually controlled it pretty well. They had, I think, a little small flare-up a couple weeks back before the Vanderbilt game, um, but I, it didn't take many people of, of note out. Um, and, you know, since then, they played a, Van- a Vanderbilt team that had to cancel the week after. They played Texas A&M last week. They had to cancel uh, this week, so that was interesting. But they've kind of been able to skate through that for the most part, Um which has been interesting with kind of how it's affected teams here and there. Um, but yeah, they, they've managed to stay mostly clean for right now, though. It, it had Will Muschamp uh, knocking on wood uh, at the press conference today. Yeah, definitely. And you're, you're really seeing it uptick all across the country as it really just the country in general, but you're seeing it as it pertains to sports, the NFL, it's become more frequent. Obviously you had three cancellations this, this week. You figured this was going to happen at some point. It kind of makes sense with the timing of the seasons and all of that, but it appears this game is on for now. And I think it probably is in the most solid shape of any game on the slate this week. And Ole Miss is kind of the same way. They got really rough in training camp uh, for a while or in fall camp. A little Late August, early September, they were dealing with it. And then they got close a couple weeks ago before they went and played Arkansas, but ended up with, with uh, enough guys to go make that happen. And it's been pretty decent since, which given they had a bye week last week, that seems to be, that coupled with Halloween, seems to be what's tripping a lot of these schools up. So, so far, so good on that front for Ole Miss. South Carolina coming off really a non-competitive loss to Texas A&M. I got to say, you know, watching a little bit of that game, and I, the Clemson-Notre Dame was on TV one, so admittedly this was kind of halfway in and out for me. I did not expect that game to go the way it did. I did not anticipate South Carolina necessarily winning it or necessarily keeping it within one score, but I guess starting there, what happened? Well, it, it was an interesting kind of case. It, it started out that South Carolina really – last year and through a lot of the years has been able to hang with texting him. They've never beaten him, but for a lot of years, they've at least made it close or they've kept it close for a while. And, and last week the offense was just, it, it was just not good. Uh, texting and basically came in and said, if you're going to beat us, you're going to beat us throwing deep. They had, I think two, maybe three drop deep balls early and things just didn't go well on that front. And I, I kind of joke with someone that, they almost made it to halftime down 14 to nothing, which considering how badly they were playing would have been kind of an accomplishment. And then they had a busted run fit uh, with like two minutes to go in the half and ended up giving up a three minute touchdown drive to go down 21 to nothing. And that was, that was basically it. But yeah, it was, it was among the most one-sided games I've ever covered. Maybe the most one-sided game, at least I've covered uh, since I was on the Gamecocks beat though uh, the Clemson game four years ago was probably probably in that uh, in that category. The schedule has not done South Carolina too many favors through the first half of the season when they kind of reshuffled everything and it became the 10-game conference schedule. You start with a Tennessee team that hit the skids lately, but at the time the game was played, you kind of thought, that's a top 25 team, one of the hotter programs in the country. You got got to go to Florida. You catch a break with Vandy, and then Auburn and LSU. Even the current versions of them, it's not exactly the easiest test in the world. And then, of course, A and M looks like the second best team in the West, pretty clearly. And what is kind of the mindset? I guess we'll start macro there because you talk about all these schools being strapped for cash, and you talk about what the coaching 
turnover is going to be like the coaching changes and the cycle and all that. And I don't think you can have that conversation without seeing Will Muschamp's name pop up in most circles. He's had an interesting tenure. Like there, there's been obviously the one high with the nine and four. I can't remember. Yeah, nine and four mm-hmm. that that one year. But just struggled to find consistency. What is kind of the temperature of both, I guess, the fan base and people actually in power in terms of what his status is 2020 and beyond? And how does COVID factor into that? Well, I think folks are mad. Um, I kind of, I, I think I wrote in at least one column over the past few weeks that, you know, people don't really want to pay money to get put in a really bad mood by halftime. And the last two games have just been awful on that front. I mean, they've been down three touchdowns at halftime, back-to-back games. Um, it came against teams that aren't necessarily, you know, I think Texas A&M is very good, but up until that point, they hadn't really blown the doors off anybody. And, you know, they picked a time to start with the Gamecocks. So I think the mood is sour from the general fan base. I think the mood is sour from, you know, the a lot of the powers that be because, I mean – this is a team that last year, had there not been an $18 million buyout, I don't know that they would have fired Will Muschamp, but I know that it would have been a lot closer than it ended up being. Now, this year was sort of going to be the prove-it year. If he doesn't do well, if he doesn't stabilize things, then he probably would have been out. That was before COVID. Well, now COVID happens, and you've got this situation where, I mean, the athletic department is so short of money I mean, there was a stretch where they even they, they canceled using the, the most popular stat keeping system because they could save a little money by not using it. Um, it you know, the, they're strapped. I, I think I want to say the number was in the $40 million of projected deficit. So, and, you know, that implies that revenue stays somewhat good, which obviously, you know, they hope, but you don't necessarily know. So, it, you know, on that front they're in a, t- a tough spot. Now, the question for me always has kind of been, you know, if people get mad enough, someone can foot some kind of bill. And it's a question of, does someone get mad enough to say, I'll cover, you know, the range of expenses that come with firing the coach? Because, you know, you're talking about the coach, but you're also talking about the staff. You're talking about the new coaching staff. You're talking about buying someone else out. So it's a tremendous financial burden. And, and, the, and the honest answer is, I don't know. There were times through this offseason when I said, there's just no way they can do it. And it now kind of seems like the sentiment isn't necessarily shifting, but it might be. I mean, it's just it's, it's, it's a very weird and fluid situation, I think. Yeah, there's a lot I want to hit on from your answer there. I thought that was a great answer in multiple facets. One, it's like Ole Miss in terms of they're, they're kind of everyone that's not you know, your elite of the elite budgets across the country, really just talking about Texas, Texas A&M, Ohio State, you can kind of figure out who it is. Everyone's strapped for cash right now. And I think that's what makes this coaching carousel so fascinating. But the second part of that, you mentioned the end of 2019 getting dicey. They had that early October strange win at Georgia. And I originally thought before I looked up, they, they lost out after that, but they did, they lost what five of six and beat Vanderbilt sandwiched in between there. Is mm-hmm. that to you, in your mind, kind of the perfect encapsulation of this must champ era? And I guess the second part of that question, is he gone 
like if, if he doesn't win that game, if that Georgia upset doesn't happen last year and they end up three and nine, do you think that kind of seals the fa- his fate? Like, do you think that you'd have a new coach? I, I, I think the answer is yes. I mean, as said, it was a big buyout, but you know, three and nine in sec school and you know, your two wins are an extremely bad, your three wins are an extremely bad Vanderbilt team. Uh, an FCS team that was even extremely bad for an FCS team and a Kentucky team that was between a starting quarterback that got hurt and realizing Lynn Bowden, uh, Lynn Bowden should have just been the quarterback all along. So I I think that Georgia win probably saved him last year. And I don't know if I'd call it the perfect encapsulation because I just like, I guess I just meant that in the sense that like, it seems like every time he's gotten a big, uh, a a signature win, he has not been able to generate consistency off of it. I guess was the lens I was looking through that when I asked. I I think there's a good deal of truth to it. I think the game and how it happened with the context of the rest season was very well Muschamp because his teams tend to play extremely weird games. They tend, these games that you kind of, you get to the end and you're like, I don't totally know how that happened, but there's X many points on the scoreboard on each side, and I guess that works. I mean, the, the Auburn game was kind of like that. They got, I think, outgained by a good bit, but picked up a bunch in terms of weird turnovers. Um, and it's, it, it, but it, it, a little bit of that is true in the sense that his first two years they exceeded expectations to a notable amount, and they were expected to do big things because of a good schedule. Uh, his third year, and then the schedule turned brutal. And South Carolina lost a bunch of close games, and their defense fell apart. So instead of a coronation, it was kind of not necessarily a full backslide, but a very unsatisfying year. And then a whole bunch of pieces, you know, kind of fell apart. So it's been a very weird era. And I think the more that I've watched it, the more that I kind of think, you know, it it makes me wary of every single coaching hire now because I look at them and, you know, you mentioned Tennessee. I kind of see every coaching hire and I say, well, what's it going to look like in year four? And if, if it looks good in the first three years, that might not tell the first two years, that might not tell me all that much about what it's going to look like. You know, when we get to this point. Yeah, definitely. I could not agree more with that last part because, and you talk like the unhappiness and happiness of college fan bases because of the money at stake and because the expectations are just so volatile now. I mean, you look at even just like the 2017 coaching carousel and you look at the top of the line guys, like, no one out of that coaching carousel is happy with where they're at right now. It doesn't seem like it. So it, it's just a very, very fickle industry. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to follow, but kind of getting more down into this year, it was interesting. I, you know, I was reading what some of you guys have written leading up to this week. And, and it seems like they've opened up the quarterback competition to say the least uh, this week. And they, they, you got Colin Hill and you've got Ryan Hilinski splitting reps as someone that is an outsider who obviously, much like Ole Miss, there was not a ton of buzz around Ole Miss's program other than kind of the buzz that comes with Kiffin naturally coming into the year. And there was a huge disconnect about who, what was actually – everyone saw John Rice Plumley run wild over LSU last year who was really not really mentally there in that game. And everyone just assumed he was going to be the starting quarterback. Whereas locally, if you're actually covering the team and going to practice and even just following it from a fan's perspective too, they knew that Matt Corral was probably going to beat out John Rice Plumley. And I think when you heard the announcement earlier this year that it was going to be Hill and not Helinski, I think that shocked a lot of people. So I guess I'll ask it this way. Was that shocking to, to those close around the program at South Carolina? Uh, not by the time it was announced. 
Um, there was sort of a shocking moment early in the summer when reporters here and there started hearing stuff and they said, you know, Collins taken most of the first team reps in, you know, player run practices. And, 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 you know, then they started getting those walkthroughs and he was taking a lot of first team reps there. All of a sudden, you know, it started to kind of form that once we started talking to players, all of them started complimenting his arm and, you know, he's the guy who's a former three-star grad transfer from Colorado state. And, you know, they're saying, you know, he has an NFL arm and you started to kind of think about it. Ryan Holinsky is, uh, you know, a, a decent quarterback. He's not mobile at all. And Colin Hill, I think, is a little more mobile. So all of a sudden you'd say, well, he's faster than Ryan Holinsky. And he's got a better arm than Ryan Holinsky. And he's run this new offense that the Gamecocks were installing for four years at Colorado State, whereas Ryan had to learn it from the jump. So all of a sudden you started doing that math and started saying, there's just no, there's no great path for Ryan Holinsky to win this job. So, you know, they kept telling us that the, the reps were even and this guy was doing well and that guy was doing well. And I think really through all of camp, basically the assumption was Colin was going to win it unless something really crazy happened. Um, and then he did. And then he went through the season. And I don't think I don't think it's all his fault, but he hasn't been particularly effective and the offense hasn't either. Yeah, so that's the part I think that gets probably lost on some outsiders is the fact that, you know, Hilinski takes over for an injured Jake Bitley last year. It really seems like he played, you know, it seemed like he played well immediately or well enough to kind of, you just kind of assume that he would go in there and probably kind of be the, I guess, quote unquote future if he continues to play well. But then, you know, Muschamp hires Bobo, he brings in his guy and all of a sudden that happens. So it sounds like as if, if, if South Carolina had gone elsewhere in their offensive coordinator search last year, it's probably Helinski at quarterback still. Um, I'd say probably it, it depends what the, the, you know, the new offensive coordinator wants. And, you know, it, it wasn't like they had a, a particular depth of quarterbacks to begin with because uh, the two elder quarterbacks that they had recruited before Ryan Helinski, uh, one of them is playing wide receiver right now. The other one uh, was playing receiver and a little bit of quarterback and then took a medical disqualification for a long-term shoulder thing. So, you know, they would have had to add somebody, I think, or just, you know, accept being incredibly thin. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, he, he came in with, with a lot of hype and, and I think he still has some development to do. And, you know, some of that, I think it's just going to be sort of a wait and see moment. Cause I think sometimes people assume that quarterbacks are going to step in and be, ready off the jump and then you know sometimes they're not what has been the predominant issue that's plagued this offense because they're really kind of a middle of the pack team in terms of rushing the football they have struggled to pass the ball it seems like the offensive line is not necessarily protected well on pass pro i mean i think he's been sacked what 18 ish times what in your mind has been just kind of the overarching issue with you see they move the ball they put up a decent amount of yardage they just don't score a ton of points what has been the kind of the the underlying issue there well, the two biggest issues, I think, I think you can probably find some fault with the running game. You can find some fault with Colin Hill, uh, you know, certainly because he's getting benched. But, well, he's, he's in an open competition, so he might not get benched. But he's, you know, at least having to fight for his job again. But the two biggest issues that I've kind of seen through it are they don't have a depth of playmakers. And they don't have that many really high-end playmakers. So... Shai Smith has been, you know, a bell cow in the passing game, but a lot of the time he functions almost as, you know, a running back through the air, catching little out routes, moving the chains kind of thing. Nick Muse has been 
decent at tight end, um, but not great. He's had a, 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 a number of issues with drops and beyond those two, the next best, uh, two best, uh, uh, guys in the passing game are running backs, Kevin Harris and backup running back Deshaun Fenwick. And that's just not super tenable. So they've had issues with having enough playmakers and it's not like their running game is sort of, you know, we're, we're not talking about, uh, Wisconsin or, or old LSU where their running game can just kind of command the show. And their pass pro has been notably problematic and, you know, as you said, it's manifested itself. I think he's being sacked, uh, you know, on nearly one out of every 10 dropbacks, which is a problem to say the least. And that in, especially early in the year, that pressure was even manifesting itself more strongly in the fact that, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, a couple of his interceptions were kind of basically on uh, pressures where, you know, plays where he got jostled when the ball's coming out. So, I think that it's it's kind of been a case of that lack of pass protection and, and the lack of playmakers have caused a lot of issues for the passing game. And to be honest, I don't know that either this passing game or this running game have a super high ceiling. So I think that they kind of need to be on the ball and efficient. And for the most part, they haven't been that. What has happened at the receiver position at South Carolina for the last two years? And I know the simple answer is that they lost guys, but I go back to South Carolina came to Oxford in 2018 and they beat Ole Miss 48-44. And one of the kind of the under underappreciated storylines of that week is that that receiving core of AJ Brown, DK Metcalf, who was hurt at that point, Demarcus Lodge, a young Elijah Moore was kind of like, wait, wait, wait. Now, South Carolina has a pretty damn good receiving core themselves. And Debo Samuel's still there. Brian Edwards, a young, shy Smith. But you kind of started hearing about how they were kind of the the Ole Miss of the East, I guess, when it pertained to their wide receivers. Now, Alabama obviously would have liked to word there as as well in terms of best wide receiving cores. But, like, is it just been a drop-off in recruiting? I just – I remember in 18 it kind of sounding like that this was a group that was going to be dynamic for a while. And as you kind of alluded to a second ago, it seems like it's just really fallen off. I mean, Shai Smith's the only name I still recognize there. And I get some of that's just eligibility. But what has happened there? Um, uh, a high-end case of eligibility. Uh, Devo Samuel, that was his last year. He moved on. Then last season was Brian Edwards last year. And they have done just not a good job of replacing them. You, you've got a guy like jo- Josh Van was probably one of the better receiver recruits they've ever added. He's basically been not a non-factor because he plays a decent amount, but he hasn't produced. Um, and he's, I think he's a junior now, which is very strange to think about because he, he was supposed to be kind of that next guy. He never sort of lived up to that. They had a kid named Ortrey Smith who uh, had was was a four star. He's had kind of a, a a bunch of knee issues. He's currently uh, sitting out uh, for for COVID reasons. Um, yeah, he's one of those opt outs. And they just none of the other guys that they've recruited have delivered as sort of consistent options. They've if you kind of look at their recruiting rank, their recruiting production really since the 2017 class, they haven't added a single impact guy and it's been a problem because I mean, these guys are just, they're just not doing anything. 
is that kind of what has led to, to the slide off? I mean, you mentioned what they go seven and six and 18. You mentioned they start losing a couple of games, but it seems like there's been a dip in recruiting just kind of overall on the offensive side of the football for Muschamp in the last two and a half ish cycles, I would say. Well, if you look at the raw um, recruiting rankings, they're actually fine. They're pretty decent. They're usually somewhere a, a couple, a spot or two above or a spot or two below 20th national. That's usually about where they are. The problems, I think, are kind of twofold. One, they, some of their really blue-chip guys are quarterbacks. And they've gotten two Elite 11 guys in the past couple cycles. Neither of those guys are starting, so that kind of hurts. Um, they landed a kid named Marshawn Lloyd, who was supposed to be an offense-defining tailback. He shredded his ACL uh, somewhere in the middle of camp. And then if you look at kind of the rest of their five, uh, four, a lot of their four stars, they're not producing. And when you have a lot of four stars not producing, that creates a lot of problems. And I mean, their offensive line last year was young and raw and not all that good. And this year it's been a little bit better, but, you know, guys that they sort of expected to be a, notably above average players just haven't been. And I imagine the most, like, I guess it, if you're if you're viewing it from a South Carolina fan or booster or whatever you want to talk about his perspective, is not only are they not explosive on offense, but the last couple of games they've been given up a billion points when your head coach is a defensive guy. Yeah, I mean, they have played just very badly on both sides of the ball, just outstandingly badly. At, at least against LSU, they showed a little life early, despite the fact that they never forced a punt. And against Texas A&M, um, as I said, based on how things were going, if they were within two scores at halftime, you would have called that an enormous win. Um, they just, they just, their defense has been very bad. And so, you know, injuries robbed them of some of their defensive backs last game. But, you know, and their run defense, I think, improved a little bit. But for the most part, They've just opponents have just been able to lean on them, and that is a problem for them. But when you come into this game and kind of flipping back to the offensive side of the ball, if there has been a medicine for an ailing offense, it has certainly been facing this Ole Miss defense. They are the worst in the conference by far. They give up a ton of yardage. They're not very good against the run. Their secondary is improving, but they're young and they still have all kinds of busted coverage assignments. I mean. And from a South Carolina standpoint, are they kind of looking at this as possibly a get-right game? Like, and, I mean, it would be one, obviously, if you can score and keep up with Ole Miss. They have a very good shot of winning the game. But just seeing good things happen offensively. And then I guess I'll throw in a second question in there. Who do you think plays quarterback? Um, Narrative-wise, uh, this is a team that, especially when things are going badly, um, they tend to sort of revert to not exactly cliches, but they speak in a very measured way. So, you know, we asked them, you know, is this a get right game? Is this a game you can get back? And their basic answer was our goal is to score on anyone, um, <laughs> which is, as you can tell, just, just scintillating copy. Um, <laughs> I can imagine <laughs> it's, I, I don't know if it's a get right game because I don't know. I mean, I think if you want to play this, this Ole Miss team to a degree, having some level of explosiveness matters and they've struggled in having explosiveness. Now 
I, I think that, you know, maybe they can march up and down the field all day, but the problem is that they're still going to have to try to match that Ole Miss offense. And that's going to be really tricky. Like, I, I don't know if this Gamecocks team has 40 points against a non-Vanderbilt team in it. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm wondering, is there kind of going to be that burst? Can they figure it out? Um, obviously Ole Miss would be the team to do it against, but you know, if it becomes a track meet, can they keep up? I don't know. It seems like the blueprint for South Carolina winning this game is similar what to what Kentucky did to Ole Miss. Ole Miss has the worst rush defense in the SEC. And South Carolina, it, it seems like for the most part at times, has been able to run the football when they needed to. I mean, you got Kevin Harris. He's at about five yards of carries at what they've played six games at 574, 106 carries. Like, that would seem to be a little bit of kind of an Auburn blueprint as well to where you're marching up and down the field and scoring but it's also a little bit of ball control in the sense that you're keeping the ball out of Ole Miss's hands because I don't think South Carolina, from what I've seen from this year, are going to necessarily torch Ole Miss in the secondary. I think there's a little bit more explosiveness needed at receiver. But in your mind, is that kind of the blueprint? Is them to just kind of overpower Ole Miss? Because Ole Miss has been brutal against the run. I think if they're able to do it, they would like to. Um, It's always a little worrisome on that front when you're facing – you know, any team that wants to stack the box. South Carolina has been good running the ball relatively, but I don't necessarily know that they've been. And it's just there aren't that many offenses outside of a few power eyes and option teams that say we can run for 250 yards whenever we want. Maybe Alabama because of their talent, but I don't, I think they would like to do that because if their running game is really going, it takes so much pressure off whoever's playing quarterback. Um, so I definitely think that could kind of be a factor in there. And I also think they benefit a little bit from the fact that obviously Ole Miss has a guy who worked defensively with Will Muschamp. So there's probably a greater level of knowledge of what Will Muschamp wants to do defensively than there is what they want to do offensively. And you definitely asked me about quarterback and I forgot to answer that. And I'm going to guess Colin Hill, um, because all the reports about practice, well, I mean, I guess Colin Hill, because all the reports out of practice through all the preseason were that Colin Hill looked better. Um, and I just, going with Ryan Linsky has tremendous PR benefit. And I don't know if that's something that Will Muschamp wants, would sort of jump onto. Um, I don't think it'd be bad if Ryan Linsky had a um, And, you know, it, it might be nice to see because he's a really nice kid. Um, my gut is still Colin Hill, but, uh, you know, if anyone looks back at my game picks, I'm, I'm not al- always the most right. So, you know, who knows? <laughs> I know. I understand what you mean on that from the PR perspective, because what you've got a younger, obviously a younger kid in Helensky. And at the same time, as bad as it's looked the last two weeks, they've played for soccer. I know there was a bye week sandwich in between, but this is a winnable game. Well, Miss has been an awful defensively. Oh, there's a kind of a blueprint. You know, you haven't really seen Ole Miss play a competent defense again. You know, they tore it up Vanderbilt, but who who hasn't? But the, the the book's kind of been out on what to do against Corral, and it's play a lot of zone coverage and really confuse him in doing that. And I say that if Al, if South Carolina is able to win this game, Missouri the next week very manageable. Obviously, probably not beating Georgia, but then you've got a road game at Kentucky. There's a chance to win three of the last four if they play well, and. 
I, like you said, I don't know if Muschamp buys into this, but that gives him maybe a better case at the end of the season if he does that with a sophomore versus a grad transfer is kind of what you're getting at? Um, n- not even that. I, I, I think that, as you kind of said, three of those four games are winnable, but the first step is they have to stop playing, you know, truly as badly as they're playing. Um, and I almost more mean from the fact that, uh, you know, you've covered this sport. Fans always want to see the backup quarterback. Yeah, and that's if, definitely true. And, you know, a backup quarterback might buy you a week or two of people not screaming things at you. And I, I don't know if that helps um, because then people quickly will turn to if he's good. Well, why didn't you play him sooner? But, you know, I think it, it does to a degree help. Um, but, you know, I, I think at this point he could take any slight PR boost he can get because – uh, you know, the mood is not good. Well, one thing I will say about the flip side, which is why I, I may be a little more pessimistic, is so I'm a bit of a nerd, and there is a, uh, a stat uh, called success rate, which is basically, it, for lack of a better word, it measures how good teams are stringing together long drives. So, you know, how, how good you are getting second and, second and short or converting third downs or whatever. And... Ole Miss is excellent doing that in the air. They're good at just moving the ball down the field slow and steady and then sometimes getting explosive plays. And South Carolina's defense is the kind of defense that if it's second and 11, they'll give someone a lot of space for an eight-yard in that sets up third and three. That's just always the way they've been under Muschamp. And so the more I – and that was a real problem against A&M. And the more that I kind of look at those numbers, I just think we could see a game where Muschamp says – you know, work down the field in nine play drives and Ole Miss says, sure. Definitely makes sense. The, the part of the, about the, you know, you, the backup quarterback buying time, it's interesting because it's not necessarily the, the, the normal case because you have almost a season of sample size under Helensky, right? I mean, basically mm-hmm. a, a full season. And so like in your mind amongst like South Carolina fans and the people that are going to buy him more time, is he a known commodity or a, like, what did, what did they kind of view Helensky as at, at this point? Like what is his future at South Carolina? Um, at this point, I think people mostly just view him as an alternative to what they are seeing on the field at this exact moment. Um, it, it, it's not like he was superb last year. He was solid at points. He, he played maybe like half the season with something wrong with his knee because, I mean, someone hit him against Georgia, and if he wasn't wearing a brace, he would have torn his ACL like nothing. So he, he was kind of limping the entirety of the second half. His, his, his best targets were both hurt at different points. So... I don't think anyone views him as a as sort of a known commodity. I think they sort of say he was a really hyped recruit. He played early and at the very least, he wasn't notably worse than what they're watching right now. So I think that's kind of where the mindset is with him. Um, and in terms of future, it, it's an interesting case because he's a guy who came here to play for a different offensive coordinator and a different quarterback coach. And his new offensive coordinator came in and immediately got a grad transfer who started starting over him. And, you know, I don't know what the potential for a transfer is because his, his family moved out here, and uh, I don't quite know the, sort of their mindset on how much longer they'd want to stay if they want to move again. 
But, you know, and especially after this year, he's still going to have three years of eligibility. But, you know, I think it's kind of a holding pattern. I mean, he, he said he never thought about transferring. But, you know, at season's end, if Colin Hill reasserts control and, you know, takes the job back, you know, I would be completely unsurprised if we saw Ryan Holinsky move on because that's what former, high, former highly rated quarterbacks do. Completely unrelated to this game, and I've always found this fascinating, when you're gauging Muschamp in his resume at South Carolina through just kind of judging his full body of work, and like I guess if the powers that be are sitting there making a decision after the 19th season or whatever, after 20, how much of what Clemson is doing is a factor? Because there's a part of me as like, obviously an outsider thinking, well, that's a whole different level. Like, you, you can't really base anything off of that. But at the same time, Clemson wasn't always Clemson, and it wasn't that long ago where this was a very, very competitive rivalry. How does Clemson fit into how people view what Muschamp has done at South Carolina and, I guess, his uh, capital security, whatever you want to call it? I think it's kind of complicated because you've got to remember, it wasn't so long ago that South Carolina beat Clemson five years in a row. All of those were quite good Clemson teams and South Carolina fans were pretty much on top of the world, you know, in that rivalry. And since it's flipped, Clemson went supernova. Um, I get, I get that there's, I I think there's some sense a little bit kind of in that, in that powers that be about, you know, grumbling about that. But I think that also the challenge of beating and becoming like a Clemson right now is just so far away because, you know, you're talking about a team that hasn't looked competent two weeks in a row. And there's just such a gap. And I I was sort of thinking about this earlier that, you know, if this was a team that was hanging tough and was playing hard and was sort of competing with folks, um, I think that people might look at it differently, but you know, that, uh, the, the Tennessee game you mentioned, they make a bunch of bad mistakes and lose by four. Against Florida, they're a little bit closer. Or, you know, they're probably never going to win that game, but they still make a bunch of bad mistakes. And they beat Auburn, you know, by hook or by crook. And then, obviously, the last two weeks, the, you know, the, the ceilings caved in on them. And a little bit of me kind of thinks, I was looking at, other coaches that recently gotten hired. And I think if they were just showing the fight that Arkansas was, I don't know that people would be happy, but if they were showing the fight that Arkansas was and competing and sticking with some better teams, I think that some things might be more forgiven, but you know, if you're not even showing that fight and gumption, it's hard to say, well, Clemson really factors in because they're just in different worlds right now. That's such a fascinating, a great answer, and it's such also such a fascinating dynamic. I mean, that being the other pro, other major program, let alone at a different conference, you know, neighboring a school that is, to your point, like you can't ask anyone to beat Clemson. I mean, no one else has been Clemson other than Alabama, who was there long before. Like, no one else is doing that level of success. But I just, it's like you mentioned, it is also hard to imagine that that doesn't play some sort of factor given the proximity and what the rivalry was as recently as what. 2014, because I think people forget that 2015 season that Clemson made the run to the national title game, and granted they lost it, that South Carolina game was relatively close, right? I mean, that was when Watson first came on the scene, but that wasn't a 
those two programs were not in different stratospheres at that point, it did not feel like. Um, up until – so they, they won five in a row. And then in 2014, Clemson had a really good defense and a so-so offense. And Deshaun Watson was a true freshman and beat South Carolina on a torn ACL. South Carolina had just one of the sorriest defenses you'll ever see. And then the next year, the bottom fell out for South Carolina. But somehow the Clemson game was – it wasn't super close. The final score was within a touchdown because South Carolina scored with like six seconds to go or something. But overall, it was it was kind of it, it, it. South Carolina showed fight in that game, and it was interesting because you know the Clemson game hasn't really been particularly close since then. It was kind of close the one year that Jake Bentley threw for about a billion yards, but the defense wasn't good enough. But yeah, I mean it's it it's hard because I'm sure there are some people who are saying, well, South Carolina used to beat Clemson. And the, again, the problem is, you know, Clemson used to be one thing and now it is another. And there, there probably isn't a hire that's going to get you to that level because if there was a hire, there would have been a hire at some point that would have made South Carolina, you know, the best team in the SEC East more than once in its history. And that person, you know, doesn't, hasn't existed yet. Absolutely. And last thing for, I, I, I really appreciate your time. Last thing for I get out of, we get out of here is with these four games left, obviously Saturday is an important game. I think it's a winnable game. It's you've seen kind of the line fluctuate a lot. It doesn't seem Las Vegas has a great feel for this either. And I think that's just because these two teams are so volatile on opposite sides of the football, right? Ole Miss has been horrendous defensively. Our South Carolina has struggled to be consistent on the offensive side. Just looking down the gate, down the pipe, this game, and then the three after, what like, what path is there to South Carolina running this back next year uh, with this current staff? Like, what, what does that have to look like the rest of the way? Or does it matter because of the strap for cash situation? So my logic on this front is if, you win, if they win three more games, probably safe. Three more games, realistically, if they go five and five in this season, you know, People will have been a little sad in the middle of the season, but it'll have gotten right. If they win four, or, you know, if they win two more games, get to four and six, you know, at the beginning of the season, four and six would have probably been kind of a success. So you might shrug and take that. Three wins might get dicey. Two wins gets extremely dicey. And two wins is not necessarily out of their own possibility. And then it, you know, becomes the question of cash because, you know, you've got the matter of, maybe a booster calls and says, well, if this nonsense continues, I'm pulling my funding. Well, that doesn't necessarily pay for the person, you know, pay for a coaching change, which, you know, really overall is kind of an outstanding outlay of cash. So, I mean, it kind of matters who steps up. Is that is this is a program that, you know, one of its most wealthy donors, uh, Houston Texans owner Bob McNair passed away in the last few years. And, you know, they just built a $50 million football facility, which I'm sure tapped out a lot of donors. And let's face it, the pandemic hits a lot of people. So the answer is, I don't know, because I don't know how mad people can get, how much money people can step up and internally how much worry of losing money could finally push them over that edge. Fair enough. That's it. This is a fascinating game for you know different reasons than you would think because Ole Miss is in a similar boat in the sense that like 
in terms of just the short term, the second half of the season, hey, you beat South Carolina, you got a chance to win three out of the last four. A&M on the road would be tough. And the same time, if you lose to the South Carolina team as constructed, who can you really count on beating in terms of LSU and Mississippi State? So should be a fascinating one. It's really an important an important game for both coaches and both coaching staffs for very, very different reasons. Ben, I really appreciate the time. This was a great conversation. Maybe we'll do it again sometime soon. I really appreciate it, man. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.